Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We hear it over and over again that we are a nation of immigrants. Unfortunately, we're hearing it in a boiler factory over the cacophony of noise about race, about change, about security, and about raw politics. What's lost most of all is the reality of the personal immigrant experience, what it's like to be a stranger in a strange land, to straddle two nations, appreciate both, and not look at nationalism and culture as a zero-sum game. The immigrant experience demands a degree of self-awareness that's not present in most Americans. And that by itself changes the way that immigrants see themselves and the world around them. It creates a kind of heightened reality and appreciation and skepticism that most of us don't have the privilege of seeing. We're going to examine the internals of that experience today with my guest, Alfredo Cachado. Alfredo Cachado is the Mexican border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. He's author of the previous book, Midnight in Mexico. He's a Neiman, Lannan, Woodrow Wilson, and Rockefeller Fellow, and the winner of numerous journalism prizes. It is my pleasure to welcome Alfredo Cachado here to talk about his new book, Homelands, Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Alfredo, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Jeff. One of the things I want to talk to you about is what you have experienced and your friends, the guys that you write about in this story, in terms of how the immigrant experience was different 10, 15, 20 years ago versus the experience today, both in terms of the practical side of it and the psychological side of it. I think uh, when we met, uh, this was back in the 80s, um, you have to remember we had a president, President Reagan, who actually uttered the word amnesty in public and said, you know, we, we need an amnesty program. Um, so if the, the nativism, the, the divisions, they weren't there. I think there was a wider recognition of the magnet pool that, that in order for the American economy to keep roaring, you needed workers, you needed, uh, you know, that labor coming mostly from Mexico, but from, from throughout the world. Um, we have to remember that President Reagan actually envisioned a continent, and, you know, a continent of the Americas, a continent that will compete with other um, continents, whether it's Europe or Asia, etc. So I remember in Philadelphia when I arrived, I was I had just been hired as a reporter for, for the, the Wall Street Journal. Um, Thinking that um, you know we were as Mexican immigrants, Mexi- uh, we were sort of in the shadows of things. We weren't really out there. I mean, people knew we were there. People knew that workers were there. They knew they were picking mushrooms just near Philadelphia. But it was just it was just sort of a coexistence where a, a quiet acknowledgement. Uh, we need you here. You guys bring you know much needed uh, labor. Uh, don't make too much noise. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't anything like today. I mean, you know, just the reason I came to the United States, I mean, I, I was I was only six years old. I came to this country kicking and screaming because I didn't want to leave Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was a little kid, and my first memories are of Mexico. But we came because my father was a member of the Bracero workers, that generation during that, that was signed during the Roosevelt years, uh, and it ended in 1964 when... Every year, employees would hire millions, I mean, or they would issue millions of contracts to workers to come in and work uh, in the United States temporarily, come in and leave, 
usually between February, March, all the way up to November, December. And then you went back home with your family. I mean, that's really what migration was. It was a circular migration. People were going back and forth, um, meeting the, the demand, and then going home. That all changed after the Rosetta program ended. Um, and my, my father basically said, uh, you know, my boss gets really nervous whenever I go home, and he's offering us green cards. He wants the whole family to move to the United States. I mean, I still remember just crying and saying, why do we want to, why would we want to leave our small little town? It, it, it didn't make any sense. Um, obviously, that demand for Mexican workers has never really left. And I think in many ways, the homeland is, sort of takes you through the ups and downs and through the many periods when it's, it is labor that demands or that sucks away some of the most ambitious, the youngest uh, people in Mexico who, who really want to make a difference, but obviously they don't have the economic opportunity and they end up working in the United States. Um, and eventually, uh, many of us become very, very assimilated and, and become a different country. And, that, and by the way, that, uh, that, that thing I was talking about was the this is a very important act. This is a 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, um, and that's the reason why you know millions who of immigrants uh, who did not come from Europe. Um, it really ended up changing the face of, of, of America. And that is one of the things about immigration is that it is a very self-selecting population in many respects, and it is people that are that are looking to better themselves and looking for opportunity. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's that um, you you think you're coming back, but you're coming to a country to contribute to its growth, and you come also with that dream. It's the most popular, I think, uh, immigrants from other countries, but maybe not as pronounced as Mexico. That that dream that you're going to contribute to the United States, work, save some money, and then someday go back home. Um, it usually it hasn't happened. I mean, usually people. Uh, immigrants, first generation, I mean, they end up having families, and then the second generation or third generation is saying, you know, Mexico, are you crazy? We're not going to Mexico. This is our home now. Um, it's 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 a story that you hear over and over again. I mean, I, I travel through Mexico all the time. I go into immigrant communities, and I see these homes that are being built, and I say, what is it? And they call it Casa de Nostalgia. Nostalgic home. These are homes that are being built by people abroad so that someday they can come back. It doesn't happen again that much, but but now I think because of, of the mooding in, in, in this country, in, I mean, in the United States, you are beginning to see more and more people actually making the jump and then saying, you know what, I am going home. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of add to, to your question, I mean, in the 1980s all the way to, to the present, I mean, it was Mexican migration that was very much part of that whole economic boom. And, and, and even with their presence, I mean, there was still a demand for many more. I mean, the, the American economy was growing at such a pace that you needed so many workers to come and, and help meet uh, so many um, so many opportunities. I mean, we we had, uh, we always sort of focus on workers in the Southwest. I mean, we had workers, you know, going into Lorain, Ohio, with uh, people in Michigan, in Eastern Pennsylvania, I mean, there, and there was actually a time when, when it, if you arrived from Mexico, 
the locals were so happy that they would actually turn, do a barbecue for you or do a little party for you because they were so happy to do that to help the economy. How much of it has been a direct function of what's happening in the changing nature of the Mexican economy? In the During the NAFTA period, um, it was such an economic force. I mean, that suddenly, I mean, Mexico, we have to remember, Mexico was not happy, or, and especially Mexicans, they were not thrilled about about North American free trade agreement because they felt it was, there was no way we were going to compete with farmers in Iowa and Nebraska and other places. So many, many lost their jobs and millions left the countryside. The whole countryside was just disseminated, basically, and ended up leaving for the United States to, to look for work. Um, so that, that also, that's also that factor. I mean, which is one reason why you now have a new president, you know, who, who's, who's talking about um, trying to reverse that and trying to make Mexico much more sustainable uh, for, by itself, for itself, uh, and to depend so much on the United States and try to restart some of these jobs that were lost to NAFTA. It, I don't know that that's going to happen, but that's been one of the big campaign promises. Do you think that the, the new president, that the new regime, is going to have an, a real impact on the Mexican economy at this point? It makes to be seen. There, there are so many, many promises. I mean, this is day two right. that uh, Andrés Manuel López Obrador is, is presently elect of Mexico. But already in my reporting yesterday, I mean, there's so many people with so many high expectations. I mean, it reminds me of when Vicente Fox came into office in 2000, and people thought he was going to just change Mexico magically. I think that's going to be one of his biggest challenges when he takes office on December 1st, is how much can he really do? And this is a man who who has was able to sort of tap into the hunger of Mexicans, hunger for justice, hunger for the end of violence and more security and more economic opportunity. He's made so many promises, but I've yet to really see what the plan is. I mean, he, he, he talks about change, you know, building a different, a different country, a country that's not so dependent on its fickle neighbor in the United States. But we really don't know what the plan is. And, and I think that's going to be uh, something that may come back and bite him uh, after he takes office. Is that because there are so many forces and so many institutional forces that are going to be resistant to change? I don't know that there'll be as resistance to change as to whether he can really take apart the economic integration that's already taken place between the United States and Mexico. I mean, you you now have two leaders, a a, a Manuel López Obrador, Manuel López Obrador, who has an a Mexico first agenda, and then in the United States you have President Trump, but there's America first agenda. I mean, that sells, I think, to voters. But the economic reality is that you have $500 billion going back and forth in trade. You have 5 million jobs just in, Mexico, just in the United States that are dependent on trade. You have this economic integration from both sides, you know, supply chains, et cetera. But I'm not sure that's going to go away um, overnight. I mean, it, and it doesn't, I don't see this helping Mexico because. Mexico has so many needs. I mean, uh, the new president like, talks about uh, a vast number of infrastructure projects, but he doesn't want to you know, get into debt. So he's going to need a lot of private public investment projects, and I think that's where the foreign investors are going to come in. Yet, the foreign investors are a little nervous. You know, this guy is a 
left-leaning, populist. He's also described as very pragmatic. But what, which uh, of the whole guy will, will we get on December 1st, the, the populist or the pragmatic? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of wait and see uh, as to whether or not uh, Americans will continue investing in Mexico or the foreign, foreign investment period. Uh, there's, there's going to be that period of, you know, every word he says will be analyzed carefully. He, um, after his victory on Sunday night, I mean, he made a, um, I thought it was a terrific speech, and to try to suit uh, the nerves, try to calm, calm the markets down, I think it's worked so far. Um, but it's too early. I mean, we, we have to wait a few more months to see exactly what, what he's going to do and, and, and basically see who his economic team is. And, and, and what their what their big vision is. For now, uh, his economic team has been meeting with a lot of uh, foreign investors, local investors, to try to quell any fears and try to say, look, uh, we see an important role for you. We don't see any expropriations of properties, et cetera. Uh, communers, you know, we'll get to, we'll get to this together. Uh, we'll see. And do you see it having either a short or midterm impact on migra- outward migration from Mexico? Well, we've already seen a big impact uh, in outward migration. I think for the last 10 years, the net migration, the overall net migration flow has been down. I mean, in, today in the United States, there's, there's about a, a 1 million less Mexicans right. uh, working in the U.S. Um, the numbers are... Have, been dramatically reduced since, I would say, since 2006, 2007, uh, given the uh, economic uh, crisis in the United States, the fact that you have uh, organized crime become much more vicious, which uh, is on the border. Uh, I mean, the price for for smugglers, I mean, has gone up. I mean, it used to be, if you cross from El Paso to, say, Dallas, you were paying 1000 1500 bucks. It's now 3000 $5,000. If you're Central American, you're paying six thousand or seven thousand. Something I've heard some reports of people paying ten thousand. And and forget the price, but it's the danger that you're you're being exposed to. I mean, it's so much more dangerous to cross the border because of these cartels, and also because of U.S. Uh, security along the border. It's it's hard. Um, it's made it a, a, a challenging part all along the, the two thousand mile border. And then once you cross, you're in, in, in an environment where they don't really want you. I mean, there's, there's no welcoming sign. You, you do have the employers who applaud you and they want you and, they, and they're very grateful that you're there. But the overall mood in the country is you're a criminal or you're a thug or you're a rapist, et cetera, a drug trafficker. And so I think, I think that has impacted uh, the Mexican psyche in saying, do we really want to go through that? Uh, we're not making, you know, uh, all this U.S. investment has brought in many, many more factories. They're not necessarily paying really good wages, but at least we're making ends meet, and, and we don't have to uh, subject ourselves to such humiliation. Mm-hmm. That's something uh, we just, uh, the Dallas one, if we did a poll traveling through Mexico, uh, looking at that very question, and it was interesting, a number of people, I think, I think only half said, I would go to the United States, but only if I had legal documents, and I could go back and forth. That's something that's, that's that's quite a, uh, a sea change from a few years ago when I think the vast majority would say, yeah, I'll go, I'll go work uh, with or without papers. Mm-hmm. What is the greatest misconception in 
all the, the, the overt coverage of what's going on at the border today, what's the greatest misconception you think that's out there? Well, there's so many of them. Um, hard to pick one, but I mean, the, the one that obviously comes to mind is that the border is a wide open area where people just uh, make a mad dash for the United States. I mean, it's nothing like that. And there, there is a long, tall fence already. In fact, the Border Patrol recently started referring to it as a wall. Uh, it's always been a fence since mid 2000s. Um, but I think because of the, of the new political jargon, you know, everybody's on the same page, and now and, and it's now being called the wall. Um, there is a wall. <laughs> Here I see. I'm, I'm going to do it myself. But there is a fence on, on the, the, the vast majority of, of the border. The U.S. side of the border uh, is uh, one of the safest. I mean, they represent some of the safest communities anywhere in the United States. It's very safe. I mean, I live between Mexico City and El Paso. And I, you know, when I'm in El Paso, it's another great American community. And it's, it's a very safe community. Um, it's not, um, we're not under attack. It's not a, it's not a border in crisis as so many in, in the Trump administration try to try to describe it. And, and I think when I travel throughout the United States and I say, yes, I'm coming to the border. And the first thing they look, they, they tell me is, Oh my God, how bad is it? Is that bad? And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's a great place to live. How much has the word gotten and, out? And I, Go I ahead. Just one more thing, Jeff, because sure. I think it's important when you talk about misconception. And the other misconception I think it's important to address is people who think that people on the, on the border do not care about security. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we are residents of the border. We have investments in the border. We, we have homes and mortgages to pay. We care about security. We don't want a terrorist coming to the border because we know what that would mean. So the sense that, uh, you know, we're just there and say, yeah, just bring them in, you know, bring them all, that's, that's not at all the case. Um, we worry about security, but we also don't want to be treated as some piñata. As you're a politician, A, running for office and I don't know, somewhere in the United States, and you want to make a case that you're tough on border security, and you just hit that piñata, hit that piñata, because you know if you hit it hard, you're going to get some political points. And that is, that is a, that's a really sad commentary on politicians, because people on the border do care about security. How much has the word gotten out in the interior in Mexico about what the border situation is today? Well, it's, it's gotten, I mean, I think that's one reason why we've seen uh, a decline in immigration, is that uh, people in Mexico, they, they hear the stories about the number of immigrants who have disappeared. I mean, there have been, there, there are a number of, of uh, what they call disappearances or clandestine graves throughout the, the northern part of Mexico. People who went there looking for a dream, and then they either try to they kidnap you, they, they extort you, or they try to uh, recruit you to a gang. The next thing you know, you know people, people have been killed, and many, many people have been killed. I mean, I think someday somebody's going to go out there and do, do an investigation, and already people do, I mean, already do an investigation and finding all these kinds of fine graves. So... All that, all those stories about the dangers of crossing the border, about the price of, of crossing the border, and about the unwelcoming signs in the United States. 
that is very much on the minds of Mexicans. I think we're slowly um, sipping into also to the Central Americas. I mean, there's a lot of Central Americans who, who start off the journey thinking they're going to go live in the United States. Many end up really living in Mexico um, because it's so hard to, to I mean, the, the whole family separation, it's, 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 it's a whole new factor that uh, I think when we see the numbers in June or the last few months on, on uh, people getting across, I think we might see a decline uh, because, uh, and just talking to Central Americans, I mean, they're, they're headed for the border. They're not checking their cell phones. They're not checking to see what the latest news is, et cetera. But I think once they get there, they realize, oh, my God, I'm about to lose my kid. I think those stories are getting out to other Central Americans. I think people are going to be thinking twice about it. That's, that's my sense. I have not confirmed it other than talking to people here in Mexico. Uh, but I hope to go to Central America soon in the next few weeks and, and try to document that. Which, which really raises the question, how is Mexico going to deal with the influx of migration from Central America that decides to stay there? Well, Mexico, believe it or not, is, is also having labor shortages. I mean, there are places in Mexico where there's so much growth, um, and, and it's also, it's not, it's not that young country that it, that it was once, that it uh, uh, once was. I mean, so you are seeing more and more people stay, I mean, there's a, there are communities, for example, in Tijuana, where you have um, uh, Haitians uh, who are now forming their own community. You have uh, places in Querétaro, places in the southern part of Mexico. You have a lot more Central Americans, uh, Guatemaltecos and Hondureños. I think it's a great question because I think um, it, it's going to really raise uh, the idea of uh, how, how tolerant is Mexico. I, it's too early to tell. I mean, Mexico hasn't had a great history with uh, with immigrants who are seeking opportunity. I mean, they, Mexico has always been sort of a safe haven for political refugees, et cetera. But I think this is this is kind of a new phenomenon, and I think that's something that we have to report on some more. But we already we're already seeing many many workers from Central America who are staying uh, in, especially in the southern parts of the country, like Salasco uh, and Chiapas and, and uh, uh, even, the, um, I would say, Veracruz. But even in the northern in, in the parts, like Sonora, I mean, and during the, the harvest season, you see a lot of Central Americans, or in the automotive industry, in Aguascalientes and, and Querétaro. Mm-hmm. That's it- a story that really hasn't... Uh, hasn't been done, and it's something that I'm, that I'm very anxious to uh, searching on. It's interesting that it's happening at a time when there's this surge of nationalism or seeming surge of nationalism, and, and you were talking about it with respect to the recent election, a surge of nationalism happening in Mexico. Except that's a different nationalism. I mean, this is more of a left-leaning nationalism. It's not a conservative. So I think, especially... In, in Mexico City, I mean, you do have, um, at least among Mexicans, there is a, a, a bigger sense of, uh, you know, we're brothers, we're Latin American brothers, we're, we're here to help you. Um, that's been the case. I mean, it, it, a couple of weeks ago, when all the family separations were taking place, I mean, I was surprised that Mexico was quiet for so long, but it wasn't until really civil society came out and said, hey, we, we have to say something, we have to speak out. These are our brothers and sisters that uh, politicians, the candidates, 
uh, legislator, you know, finally took a stand. Uh, Mexico historically doesn't really have uh, much of a record, a human rights record, to go out and say, "Hey, we're we're great at this." But I think uh, I think there is a movement in civil society to try to make Mexico a much more tolerant, much much more uh, generous nation. I mean, where that will go, I don't know. I mean, if you if you start seeing massive numbers, um, I don't know what's going to happen. But I mean, I, I think it is important to, to to note that many of the people who who start up the journey thinking they're going to end up in Washington or Sacramento or San Francisco do end up staying and living in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the violence that we hear about, both at the border and in the country at large. The violence last year was uh, record high. I mean, about 30,000 people were killed, um, which is the highest number in, in recent memory. This year... We're looking at, uh, I mean, we're already 20% higher than a year ago. So, so those numbers are just going to, you know, keep getting worse and worse. What we're seeing is a breakdown of the cartels. I mean, when I was covering at the, at the height of my coverage, I mean, I was looking at five, six cartels. These days, you're looking at more than 400 smaller criminal groups. So, what that means is that the violence that was once isolated on the northern part of the border is now being felt throughout the country. Where you see a lot more middle-class families and even just working-class families who are who are facing extortion, the kidnappings, the economy. Security is a huge issue. And I would say security corruption is the reason why Andres Manuel Pesolador is, is presently elect today. People were just fed up. And, and that, you know, that's something we, in, in, in the poll we did, um, something like 84% of, of, of respondents said security was the number one issue. Not just in, in Chihuahua, which is right across Texas, or not just in Baja, right across California, but in some of the most prosperous regions of Mexico, which is, you know, the Querétaro, the Bajillo uh, area, with, uh, a place they call the heart of Mexico, Guanajuato, West Caliente. So that's going to be the big, big challenge for, for the new, um, new administration. And I think you know, he's made so many promises, and I think people by now, they're, they're much more sophisticated. They're, they're not going to expect him to, to fulfill every challenge, but I think if he can do something in security and lower corruption, uh, and which are gigantic, I mean, gigantic issues, I, I think he will, he might, he might end up becoming a, a, a good president. Mm-hmm. How can the corruption be stemmed at this point? That's the question. And that's um, that's what we, as journalists, and I think the society in large, has been asking the president, like Lopez Obrador, you know, what is your plan? How will you stem this? How will you end this? Uh, how will you make a dent in it? Uh, his response so far is, um, it's not a cultural thing. It's a it's a systemic thing, and it starts from the top. And the top, he means the president. And I, as Lopez Obrador, I'm going to set the example. I'm not going to steal from you. I'm not going to, you know, uh, betray you. I will set the example. And by doing that, it's going to trickle down. That, to me, sounds like, you know, very lofty talk. Um, People are not buying it. And I think people are worried that he's not talking so much about building institutions or strengthening institutions, 
but more about it's it's about me and I'm going to be the one who's going to change this. That's, uh, I mean, that right there is going to be, I think, the story for us in, in, in the weeks, months to come, if not the years to come. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is that even if he has a small amount of success, there's so much of it and it's going to take so long. And and how patient will people be with him? Well, we saw it under President Fox. I mean, I've had a lot of um, uh, moments when I'm thinking back of covering Defensive Fox back in 2000 when he came in and he went to the Angel of Independence along the former avenue and he said, I will not fail you. Um, and it was a streamlined line utter this Sunday night. Not um, not at the angel, but not very far from that, where he said, I will not fail you. Um, and we saw what happened with Regent Park. I mean, he had so many expectations. And I think today it's safe to say that many historians, many experts say he really fell flat. Um, that's going to be what this little you know, uh, mandate. I mean, he, he's going to have to prove that he can do something. Uh, so it's it's too close to know whether he's going to have a full mandate, but um, just just in in the preliminary results on that we're seeing, I mean, he's going to have the House, he's going to have uh, the Senate, uh, he's going to have important governorships throughout the country. He will be able to, I think, to change parts of Mexico um, if he's smart enough and he can continue working with these. Uh, some of these are, you know, very strange uh, coalition blocks. I think he will actually get something done, but I, but he's, he's going to have to prove to be a real savvy politician, and that's that's uh, that's still up in the air. I mean, he's uh, he's got streaks of authoritarianism. Um, uh, I mean, he he said uh, in, in his first speech, "I am not a dictator. I will not be a dictator. I will be guided by the rule of law," um, which I think helped a lot of. Uh, Invested and helped a lot of people who voted for him to to hear him say that. But I think people were saying, "Hey, in turning out in massive numbers, I mean, 63 percent of the electorate turned out to vote." We're sending you the message that yes, we're skeptical about democracy, but we still believe in democracy, and we also need you to help us build strong institutions. Because otherwise, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And when you and your friends, particularly the your friends that you write about in, in Homelands, sit down and talk about this, what is it you guys talk about? What's the conversation? The conversation is, is, is how can Mexico become a better country? I mean, I think three of us are born in Mexico, Primitivo Rodriguez, David Peña, and I mean David Suro Piñera, and myself. I mean, we're we're Mexican-born, and we do believe that Mexico can be a better country, and we do believe that um, there's such there's such humanitarian in this country um, that we just have to, you know, get the get the fundamentals right, get the institutions right, and 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 find a way to work that. We also I believe that as Mexican Americans, and this includes Ken Trujillo, the, the lawyer and, and probably future politician, can also play a role as helping both countries uh, create more of a bridge of understanding and a soft landing for policy for U.S. policy to Mexico. Um, and I think that that goes a long way in in, in helping Mexico from abroad. 
um, Mexico, you know, now allows um, its its um, sons and daughters abroad to participate in elections, and that's that's really an important way to participate. But but also, if you can sort of also guide U.S. policy to help Mexico and help the United States, because I mean, let's face it, uh, you're not going to get rid of the geography. We're stuck here forever. This is the neighborhood. The destiny is not going to really change. So let's just try to make it better. Let's try to make it work for each for each side, and and build a better neighborhood. Alfredo Cruzado, his book is Homelands: Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican American Migration. Alfredo, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.